Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There's a... This is tough. There's a book on the market, and uh, the title is Holden, After and Before. Love Letter to a Son Lost to Overdose. And the book is written by Tara McGuire. She's a broadcaster, and as you, I'm sure, gathered, is the mother to uh, Holden, who suffered from substance abuse and died of a drug overdose in 2015 at 21 years of age. And Tara uh, investigated, met her son's friends, checked his phone, read his letters, and uh, went to great lengths to understand why her son was suffering from substance abuse. And Tara McGuire joins us. Tara, deep condolences. Uh, I I can't imagine the the struggle it must be for a parent to lose a child. And I don't want to say particularly under any circumstances because the circumstances, no doubt, will always be different. But the struggle must be immense. Um, was your son's end of life overdose a long time in coming? No, not at all. No, um, Holden was, uh, and thank you for your condolences, by the way. Um, Holden was a casual drug user. He was not someone who you would consider entrenched. He was employed. He had lots of friends. He had a um, nice place to live. You know, he was doing all right. It, it happens to anybody, and I think that's one of the misconceptions I'm trying to illuminate with this book is that people who are dying of overdose are all kinds of people, and they're maybe not the ones you're envisioning when you think of the crisis. Yeah, I'm sure. You had a view of addiction prior to Holden's death, and that view has has changed, modified, yes? Absolutely. Not only my view of it, but a lot of the language around it. Um, you know, substance use disorder is what we're hoping to call it now. We really try and stay away from addiction because it's a negative connotation that comes along with it, and one of the biggest battles is to really reduce and hopefully eliminate the stigma so that people who are struggling with a substance use disorder um, are treated just the way anybody else is who has any kind of a medical condition or emotional or mental condition with care and compassion and really not with judgment and certainly not with the with the um, you know the legal system do you think that society is willing to do that What's your, what's, your, what's your experience tell you as you investigated your son's death and his life? Um, yeah, think? I think there are some really competent people working in policy and politics. I really try and approach it from an artistic point of view. My whole point was just to illustrate that these are human beings. Holden was a human being, a complex human being, a very valuable person to us and also to society. And the more than 30,000 people who've been lost through overdose are the same. You know, in, in my view, what I have found is that these are the most creative, most sensitive, most intelligent, and in some cases, most confused and lost people that are really struggling. And what I've learned is that if we can find ways to talk about the pain that people are in, then maybe they won't have to resort to numbing that pain with drugs. You know, maybe we can find ways to understand each other and have meaningful lives instead of destructive ones. So you talked to his friends, you checked his yeah. phone, you read his, his letters, mm-hmm. and and what what did you learn about what led to his substance abuse 
And, what, and I ask that from this perspective. What may be helpful to parents of other young people who are identifying with what you're talking about right now? Yeah, I think, I think Holden felt disillusioned with the world. And I learned that from some of his private messages. I think he felt alone and confused sometimes. I think he was looking at the world. And I think a lot of young people now, I mean, Roy, we didn't have to think about the climate or whether or not we could afford a home or, you know, all of this other divisive stuff that's going on. I mean, there's always conflict, but it wasn't to this extreme. And I think with Holden, you know, he was 21. He was very aware of the world and what was going on. And so I think I learned that he was a compassionate person. He was a very good friend. He was kind and funny. And he was also, you know, a little lost, which I'm sure we can all relate to. I've been lost at times myself. We talked earlier today about the situation in Ontario and the education issue. 55,000 union members on strike in conflict with the provincial government. And out of that conversation, and it inevitably happens as it should, the conversation goes to the kids. And the kids who over the last couple of years have specifically lost the most they haven't been in the classroom as much as they should. They haven't been able to socialize with their friends as they should. That's a really significant part of the growing up experience. And the feeling is, the concern is that this generation is going to struggle to catch up for maybe the rest of their lives. Not all of them, but a significant percentage because they have that gap in their lives. And I'm just wondering, based on what you just said, whether we're going to be looking at a generation of young people 10 years from now five years from now, 15 years from now, who will find themselves in a very confused situation and will need people to step up for them. And I wonder whether that's going to happen. What do you think? I think it's happening now. Uh, my daughter Lila is 19, and she had no grade 11, no grad year stuff, really. All of her sports was canceled because of COVID, and she struggled with her mental health because of it and still does. But the bright side that I see is that she's willing to talk about it with me, with all of her friends. She has a counselor that she can access weekly or whenever she needs to go. And so some of that, um, I guess, fear or embarrassment about being depressed or being anxious or any other kind of mental health situation is disappearing. Like kids are open to talking about this stuff with their school counselors and with their trusted adults in their lives and whoever they want to talk to. So I think a lot of that positivity is coming through social media. They're learning skills. And um, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, destructive behavior and things that are going on. But I'm seeing a real hopefulness and an openness. And hopefully in the book, people are seeing that too, that it really does come from a place of love. It's not about, oh, this was a terrible thing that happened. I mean, it was terrible. It continues to be terrible. But it's more about everyone that cared about Holden everybody that misses him and how we've changed our behaviors in the wake of his death. A lot of Holden's friends that he was using substances with have are now in recovery and they're having exceptional lives. You know, so I think if, um, if you really think about it and, and look thoughtfully at what happens in our lives, we can, we can make positive change. Yeah. I hope, I hope you're right about kids being willing to talk because I've talked to parents 
of maybe younger kids who said that their their children are withdrawn. They don't want to talk. They, they one 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 parent told me or sent me an email actually that yeah. their son doesn't even want to play with his pet and dog anymore. He's just Aww. completely withdrawn. He just yeah. doesn't want to communicate. Doesn't feel he can communicate when they want when the parents want to talk to him. He just withdraws further. So that's something that has to be uh, that has to be addressed and dealt with. Um, and I, I don't mean that as a throwaway <laughs> phrase. But you've asked you asked yourself um, what you might have done differently as a parent. Mm-hmm. Tough question yeah. to ask yourself. What did you come up with? Well, I, first of all, I feel very sorry for that that child that you're talking about in that family because. It's really hard, and it's a, and I think it's important to remember that these relationships last a lifetime, and kids go through all kinds of developmental phases. I'm not giving any parenting advice because obviously I have a lot of failures in my parenting career, but what I'll say is that, you know, what I learned is to ask more questions instead of telling kids what to do. Ask them what's going on and truly listen and, and try and create and foster an environment where they know they can explain to you what's going on without being in any kind of trouble. And then, you know, that's a long conversation. Hopefully it's a lifelong relationship where you can just reassure them, you know, I'm here to help. I know the world is hard right now. It's way harder for kids now, I think, than it was for us. And reassure them that everybody is struggling. It's normal to be confused and sad. And, you know, let's try and move you slowly into a direction that's more healthy. Mm-hmm. Um and I actually forget your original question. No, no. no I, I mean, I, what, what, what do you what do you do? What do what you know? Yeah. You have to step up for oh, these kids who cannot who've withdrawn as deeply yeah. as the gentleman who sent me the email pointed out. Yeah. His son has done. And probably he's just beside himself. Um, oh yeah. And, well, I mean, and got I, that out of the email I, too. Yeah, I you know blame our devices a lot because kids don't have to go. They don't have to leave their room now to be what they perceive as connected with others. They mm-hmm. can do that through their social media channels, whatever that might be. Um, and I don't know. I would just suggest you know offering the kid options of people that they could maybe talk to who are really skilled and can help them yeah. figure out what why they're so unhappy. It, they don't have to be unhappy all of the time. And um, yeah. I always like to ask this question, and I wanted to ask it earlier than, than now, but he, why the title? Holden Before and After, Love Letter to a Son Lost to Overdose. Why the title? Yeah, it's it's called After and Before because the book begins when... Right, Holden, Holden After and Before, yes. Yeah, that's okay. That happens all the time. <laughs> um, it, it begins with his death, and then it's written in in a two-strand narrative. So there's a memoir part, which talks about Holden's life, and then there's the before part, which talks from Holden's point of view in first person. So it's kind of an interesting narrative structure, and I hope that people find it really interesting to read. It jumps back and forth. So in a way, it's a conversation where I can ask a question in the memoir part of the book, and then it can be answered in the fiction part of the book from my imagination or evidence and research that I gathered. So the title is a nod to the structure of the book, the literary structure, and also just my exploration of Holden's life before he died and then what happened after. Tara, you had thoughts about what your son's, what Holden's final thoughts were as he died. Why? Yeah, that was uh, an interesting um exploration, I guess. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about Holden and those last moments, and then I started thinking beyond physically what happened, and we don't really think about 
death in terms of what it feels like. At least I hadn't thought about it. And I wondered, you know, Holden was so smart and he was great to have discussions with because he would always be talking about this existential stuff. And I thought, well, maybe he would, you know, when you're dying, do you know you're dying? Do you discover what it feels like? And so that was one of the first fictional parts of the book where I just sort of stepped into one possibility. I mean, nobody knows obviously what it feels like to die, but um, it was a painful part of the book to write, but I felt like it was inherent in his character to look at that experience as he would have any other experience in his life. Okay. Um, I'm still thinking about that, the email from the dad about the, uh, the young boy. And, and then if we look at a family that's larger than, than one child, what's the impact on families? You've looked at this. The impact on, on families and younger siblings of having a family member who is living with substance abuse? Well, um, Holden's sister is quite a bit younger than he is, and she's obviously been impacted by his death. She was not impacted by his substance use because she didn't really know about it. And Holden was, you know, aside from the last part of his life when we were away traveling, he was present for her. You know, he was a great brother. And um, people use substances and appear completely fine. So it wasn't like he was he turned into this dark, shady character. He was still his beautiful self. Okay. So but I can see how it will it would be challenging, and it is challenging. And I know... But for families who have people who are in active drug use, it's terrifying every day. And I hear from a lot of parents who, you know, have read my book and they really appreciate it. And it helps them to understand the fear that they deal with all the time because grief can come after someone dies. But it certainly can come before when you're so worried about them all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. So now we have the reality in British Columbia where the province is decriminalizing small quantities, possession, personal possession of small quantities of illicit drugs. What's your thinking on that? Yeah, I don't really have an opinion on that. I don't think it would have made any difference to Holden's situation. I think for the for the deeply entrenched drug user who is just trying to get through the day, it's fine. It's great for them. It keeps them out of court and hopefully helps them access health care and mental health care that they need. Um, as a parent of a young teenager, I might be a little bit concerned about it because I think it might make kids a little bit more likely to try drugs and not have to worry about repercussions. But I don't actually see it as a big problem. I think it's it's doing what it's meant to do, which is to help people who use drugs openly and daily help them find safer sources of those drugs and access care when they need it. Yeah, we need some time also to assess how that uh, program will, will turn out. Now, what's the takeaway from your book? What are you hearing from from people who've read your book, parents who've read your book, perhaps uh, people who are dealing with substance abuse? What are you generally hearing? Oh, I'm hearing a lot of really good feedback. I'm, I'm hearing that they really appreciate the writing, that people are calling it a beautiful book, which is so gratifying for me to hear. Um, you know, people have said, I was afraid to read it, but it, but then I realized there's no reason to be afraid. It's just a, it's a personal experience. And I think, oh my God, people are watching like documentaries about Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix. Surely you can handle, you know, the story of one person's life. Um, but I think people are afraid of real emotion. You know, people are afraid of looking frankly at their own um, 
fears of loss and their own failings and, you know, the people that they're worried about. So people have said it brings up a lot of emotion, but in a good way. Um, people have said it's helped them have, have much more open conversations with their family members and their friends and colleagues. Uh, some people have said that it's helped them to feel understood in their grief. And not only from losing a child, I was talking to a woman yesterday whose grandfather just died in India, and she said, reading your book has helped me to understand my own grief and that it's universal. So those kind of, that kind of feedback is really nice to hear. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.